Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Banishal. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making others. I also do distribution consulting, and I managed Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. But enough about me. This week, we welcome super producer Gil Holland on the show to talk about his epic career producing indie features. After that, we play a round of You're the Expert. But before we get to that, Alric, how are you? I'm doing very well. I mean, I'm kind of in a funny situation in life right now. I'm furloughed from my job for two weeks. So two weeks uh, unpaid vacation, which is fun. Yeah, I get to spend a lot of time with my daughter and I'm, I'm like full daughter dad right now, which has been exciting. I've already got her signed up for gymnastics. So we did two gymnastics classes this week and we're going to do two more next week. And then she's going to do once a week after that. And she's learning to tumble which is cool running around like a maniac which is also fun and i'm gonna try to get a swimming her on swimming too my goal is to have her swimming and in gymnastics before i'm handed off wait that's was my it, that's what i'm doing with it, my son is it really it's swimming in <laughs> gymnastics those are the things i focus on are those that's so activities. funny they seem <laughs> like really good activities for a kid yeah. i don't know what well, it is they're so physical i mean yeah. in the gymnastics thing is like really incredible what what little kids can do like i'm, I'm at this little toddler tumble time thing and there's like two-year-olds like jumping like from one like you know surface to like a mat and they're like swinging on ropes and they're yeah. like falling into foam i'm like i want my daughter to do those things <laughs> it'll be really cool and there's like like a little older probably like three like or maybe four like spinning on the bars i'm like oh my god the future is bright so i'm i'm very excited about seeing if she's into it if she wants to keep on doing it you know and like let her let her take it on. Film stuff is also very busy. As uh, I mentioned last week, I'm working on this movie with Liz now called The Come Up, which I'm very excited about. And I'm, I'm like starting up weekly meetings with Clara. It's going to be really fun. She's the writer and like lead producer and like creative force behind this project. She's also a big time listener. And so she shouted out when I, we even talked about it last week. She, she was like, oh my God, thank you for talking about it on, on the show. So get used to that. We're going to talk about it a lot because it's like on, on top of mind. It's a good PR strategy is invite oh, yeah. a podcast host or two to work on your movie, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. But yeah, working on, uh, you know, the beginnings of putting a budget together and doing that stuff, which is fun. And then, yeah, I got approached just yesterday by a director that I've worked with before and they want me to post-produce something. It's like a pilot for a series featuring some some top level NFL players. I'm pretty sure I shouldn't talk about all, any of the details, oh. Oh. but it's like CAA is involved and it's like a big deal. And like all these people are very excited about it. So I'm going to be the post producer on that. And it's, you know, not a full-time thing. So I can like kind of squeeze it in here and there. And, you know, I'm like post-producing is like the full, the, what I do full-time. So like, this is going to be a cakewalk compared to like put it post-producing a normal project. So I'm kind of excited to, to jump into this. I, I'm going to get to meet these people who are like, I'm fans of. Are you going to meet the so, football players? Yeah, yeah, because they're shooting the on a weekend. So I'm going to go to the shoot and say, what's up? And, you know, you know, in person. And, and one of them is d- demands to be on every single meeting. So, like, we have a meeting right after this one. And he, like, wants to sit in on all the meetings. So I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, you want to be a part of this editorial meeting we're going to have? Sure. Is he the biggest Jump name? On. Or is he? Mm, well... I don't want to say yeah, anything. Never mind. He's, never. He is a person, you know, which is very cool and a yeah. professional athlete. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Anyways, very exciting stuff. And then on, on all that, I have been actually like putting some, some work on writing, not really writing, writing, but writing outline stuff for my script. So I'm like putting a little bit of creative juice on that too. So I feel like, 
you know, it's it's only been like what two days of me being furloughed, but I already feel like I'm doing <laughs> I'm making good use of the time. Although to be honest, I'm I'm really like the only time I'm not spending focus on my daughter is the, the nap time. So this is all nap time activities and the rest of it I'm just like with her trying to get her running around as much as possible. And we're doing potty training right now on top of everything, which is like... Welcome to hell. Yes. It's it's like four accidents yesterday. And then at the end of the day, what was it? Not yesterday. It was the day before. We had four mistakes on Monday. And at the end of the day, she pooped and peed separate occasions in the, to- in the potty. That's fantastic. You know, for the first time. So I was like, oh, my God. And then yesterday I had a win, like right when we left for, you know, one of the activities we're doing, I, you know put her on the potty. I was like, okay, let's pee before we put the diaper on. And then she did it right away. And I was like, I am the greatest. And then the rest of the day, nothing just accident after accident. And I'm like, and, and today we're like no wins so far. So I'm like, Oh my God, we got to get one more win by the end of the day. But I mean, how long did it take you to, to get your son to potty train? Just a few days, but he was four oh, or yeah. he was three and a half. Like he was, I for, honestly, I forgot. He wasn't four. He was like three and a half. So it was like the daycare lady was like, he's ready. You should do it now. Yeah. So we didn't. And uh, it was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah. We're doing it a little early. She's not even two yet. So we're That's like, we're, we're going, we're going hard early, which I mean, I feel like. You know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I mean, I feel like it's pretty impressive that she's like done it already. So I'm like, okay, yeah. just got to keep it going. Keep it going. Anyways, what's going on with you, Liz? What's on your end? I am working with Amy Taylor. I, I talk about this project a lot, this horror film, Best Friends Forever. And we are working to make the deaths really, really gross. That is what we're doing. And it's really fun. And like, I've been talking about this for like a very long time. Like every meeting with Amy, I'm like, Amy, it's not gross enough. How can we be more gross? And Amy really impressed me with some ideas last week that involved, I'll just say they involved tampons. And I, and they, and like in beautiful ways, just like beautiful, disgusting, lovely tampon deaths. So we're going to kind of monkey around with really, really gross deaths for the next few weeks. Other than that, there's something I did want to bring up, which is podcast related is I've been listening to two podcasts. I listen to Smartless every now and then, which is whatever. It's fine. It's like so popular. And then I listen to this podcast that my friend Christina recommends to me called Two Johns Don't Make a Right. Do you listen to this? No. It's two comedians who get in a car with another comedian and they don't turn right. They just keep on turning left. And that's the the podcast is just recording them on a journey with another comedian talking to them, but not turning right. But what I've noticed about these two podcasts is that they've invented one listener like they have one fictional listener that they direct everything to. They're like, gotta take a picture on the Instagram for Harry Walliner, our one listener, Harry Walliner. <laughs> and then they start describing Harry Walliner. And I was just thinking, wouldn't it be fun if we had like a, like a fictional listener <laughs> that we directed everything to? In Smartlist, it's like Sean Hayes's niece or nephew or something that they just direct everything to. They like explain terms to them. Mm. And anyway, so I was just trying to (laughs) think of names for our fake listener, which is, yeah, I didn't know if you were down for that, but that's what I'm thinking about. Who's our fake listener? Tobin. Tobin. Kowalski. Tobin. I love how it's always like an interesting Eastern European European name. (laughs) Tobin Kowalski. Is Tobin a unisex name? You know, like Tobin Kowalski. Do we want it to be unisex? Do we think that more men listen? Do more women? I don't know. Tobin. I just know about Tobin (laughs) Bell. I don't know any other Tobins. Yeah. I feel like we hear from a lot of women, but like I think we also hear from men too. So I don't know. I'm not sure if we have more men or more women who listen. Maybe but. there could be two. It's there's like, and they could be, you know, doesn't have to be part of the gender binary, you know, but they mm-hmm. could just have two unisex names. Oh, God. And we can just. Tobin and Pat. Tobin and Pat Kowalski. It's a couple. We have a couple. couple. <laughs> I like it. Okay, we can so, try it. I mean, I don't know if it's going to stick, but no, it's not I'm, not, I'm, not, is, I'm not opposed. I'm not as soon opposed. as I said it out loud, I was like, this is not going to stick. I could feel it. <laughs> but, but I. But thank you for letting me try. But also thank you to all of you who support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. And a big happy birthday. That's what we say when someone donates 
donates to our Patreon campaign. Happy birthday to Eric Weber, spelled as our producer, Eric Toms, likes to say the correct way, E-R-I-C. Not that we're trying to... push away any other Eric's. Anyway, Eric says, thank you. By the way, I really enjoy your podcast. My screenwriting friend, Melinda Doan Bryce, highly recommended. I listen to your show. Eric goes on to say that he wrote a script titled Cold Crazy. It's an indie horror film, and he's got some pretty high hitting Hollywood talent attached. So I just wanted to share his logline. When the horrors that happened between a suffocated woman and her controlling mother start to unravel, there's nothing left to do but kill anyone who comes close to uncovering the ugly truth or is there. (laughs) He's seeking funding and please email him at Eric Weber. That's W-E-B-E-R films at gmail.com for for budget breakdowns. He's going to send you his budget breakdown if you want to fund his film. Amazing. Anyway, he he says he loves our show. So thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. I love the walk line. I love, or is there? Especially your your read of it was great. (laughs) We also want to encourage everyone to check out the International Screenwriters Association. The ISA is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs that they offer. They have consultation courses, contests, a top 25 writers list. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. And without any more delay, here's our chat with Gil Holland. Can you give us that? We like to start things off with a real tough question. Can you give us the elevator pitch for Wicked Games? So Wicked Games is a kind of horror, classic horror film. Single gal gets lured to this nice estate by a, a suitor that she likes. And then it turns out he's maybe not the person she thought he was and may or may not have some evil siblings that have also had some terrible traumatic experiences in their past and she ends up having to fight for her life so it's coming out they said either february or april i'm not sure how they decided that but screen media and it won some you know horror festivals and it's funny because i haven't really done a lot of genre films and i'm too scared to actually watch horror films for the most part but in the last two years i've i've worked on four now so i'm kind of just you know having fun experimenting and uh working with some new new people. And, you know, we did one that shot right before COVID called Roommate Wanted, and it wasn't even SAG. So it was just super fun working with a bunch of brand new, you know, I'm all about discovering new talent and trying to nurture new new voices and, you know, help people get their, their foot in the door in this crazy industry. Wow. Awesome. How many days did you shoot the film? Wicked Games was 15 days in Virginia. And it was a, a lot of handheld camera. It was, a you know, outside Charlottesville. Teddy Grennan is the writer director and he has a good core team there of collaborators. What can you speak of with regard to the budget? You could buy a small house in Louisville. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say the, the budget 100%, but the good thing is we did, we are in the black on that film. So that's always kind of exciting. Wow. Which doesn't always happen. Sometimes I could say rarely happens in an in independent film. And then how did you get involved with the project or, you know, I don't know if you're a part of coming up with the idea, but how did that all come about? Right. So different films, you know, so like I always joke, the the producers like the mayonnaise and the sandwich. So some films, I'm the very first person, like I met Laura Heberton and Marissa Maltz at the IFP market, which is now called Gotham. And they had like a 20 page treatment of a road trip movie with Lily Gladstone. And I came up with the first, you know, amount of money to invest in the film, which basically had no script and was, you know, a pretty, I think it terrified lots of other people, like just seemed super high risk. So that one, I was kind of the first person on, on the investor side. And then it ended up going to South by Southwest and selling to Music Box. So it comes out, I think it's going to come out in May because Lily, in the four years it took to make the film, since it was, you know, the money would trickle in and then we would shoot as the film, as the money came in, it took like four years to make the movie. And in the interim, Martin Scorsese cast Lily Gladstone opposite Leo DiCaprio in the new, uh, what's it called? Flowers of the Flowers of the August Moon, I think. So that's coming out in uh, in May. So my guess is they're waiting because she's going to be a huge star after that film. So some films I come on super early. Wicked Games, he'd sent me the script and it was horror, you know, and I was kind of, you know, genre. I was like, ah, I don't know. It's not really, really my shtick, but he's an amazing writer director. He also co-founded the Sun Valley Film Festival. So an interesting person to talk to. 
and has other scripts, including one beautiful, beautiful script that we're going to shoot in Louisville that is hopefully like Oscar bait. And we're going to shoot that in September called The Growing Season. So he'd send it to me and I was kind of like, mm, I don't know if it's for me. And then he sent me, he used a bunch of our music from Sonoblast because I, I let independent filmmakers use music from our record label and music publishing company for free. Independent filmmakers always run out of money at the end when the music is the last thing to put in. So he was like sending me bits to watch to figure out what music would be good. And then I was like, this film really turned out well. And then finally, he's like, you need to just be the exact producer. You've been helping the whole time anyway. So that one kind of just happened. But most films that I work on happen organically in some way. For Wicked Games, what is the duration of your commitment? Like from jumping on board to now, how long, how much time have you spent? Yeah. So, you know, I work on about, you know, in the, in the, before I was married with kids and, you know, when I still lived in, in New York, I could work on four films as a producer, full on, you know, script to final distribution contract 10 years later. I mean, there's, you know, a, a documentary called Flow for Love of Water that we had at Sundance in oh five or 06 that I started working on in 2001. And I'm still working on, <laughs> you know, because it's still out in the world and doing cool things. And, you know, globalization, privatization of water has only gotten more and more important. And then Wicked Games, it's kind of bleeding in because then we just wrapped a film that I was helping produce, same director. So I'll see the first rough cut of that next week. And then we're in kind of early prep on the film we want to shoot in September. So now I'll be doing three films with Teddy here. So they kind of bleed in. And so, you know, can't give you the exact hours per film, but it's all part of the creative process. And, and also just, you know, basically helping your friends at the end of the day. That's a lot of what producing is. Wow. And then, like, if there was one thing you could do differently on Wiki Games, like, what would that be? I mean, he did such a good job on that film. I mean, there's, you know, one music cue that, you know, I think he overspent paying for. <laughs> You know, so I'm always like, you know, if you're making a film for no money and you have access to, you know, cheap or, or free music, why, you know, it's why spend the additional revenue. But the film made money. So I can't really say there's I think he really did a really good job across the board on that one. I'm sure on the production, I'm sure the line producer would have some comment, but I don't from my uh, exec producer standpoint. So I'm going to ask you an impossible question. We'll see. We'll see if it results in anything. But just looking at your your Wikipedia page or your CV, you know, you go from graduating and then all of a sudden it, it talks about the empire you've built, like you being in a developer, working in music, having your own label, being in film, you know, working in the gallery space, like you do a lot. What I'm trying to figure out is like, how does one build an empire? Like, how do you go from college to entrepreneur? Did you just kind of like take a risk and or save money? Or is there anything you could speak to of, of that leap of faith you took? so early on in your career. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I, the word empire is a vast hyperbolic exaggeration because it's really, it's just about building community and working with good people and doing, you know, the real estate at the end of the day, property development is just like production. You're just working with a piece of real property, a building instead of a piece of intellectual property, which is a a script and you're working with a you know an architect instead of a director you still have a crew you still have a line item budget you still try to not lose money you got to market it you got to find your audience so the the methodology and the creativity is still all there at the end of the day i love telling stories and i i was briefly a lawyer and you know lawyers are reactive you know other people come and you know you help them solve their problems. And then I realized like I can create a lot of problems myself. <laughs> and then I was working for the Cannes Film Festival and the French Film Office, which is basically the, the quasi-governmental group that works to promote French cinema abroad because it's a, considered such a big cultural export for the country of France. You know, it's like camembert, wine and cinema are three of their biggest kind of national pride cultural exports. And then while I was there, I saw these short films and this is before YouTube and there was no venue for short film distribution. And I was like, why don't we have, you know, short films? They're such, they're like the poems of, of, you know, the book publishing industry. So I started distributing short films on a video cassette called Cineblast. And then I met all these people because every, so many people make short films. And then I just started realizing like, I really like helping the young person with big dreams, little wallets, 
and then it was all in because, you know, without a wife and kids, I could sleep on the floor and sublet my apartment and sleep on the floor of the production office. And, you know, so it was like working all the time, doing what it takes, skin in the game, you know, trying not to, you know, build huge credit card debt. You know, I had, you know, back in the day, you used to get a free credit card if you signed, you used to get a free Snickers bar if you signed up to get a credit card on college campuses. <laughs> So I had like 12 credit cards. And so, you know, the very first film, literally me and Morgan Freeman, not the actor, Morgan J. Freeman, we literally threw all our credit cards in, in a pile and we said, okay, we have like 25 grand worth of credit. We can shoot a movie for that. And so then it was just like, we set the date and we started telling our friends who wants to be in it. And, you know, it's a hundred bucks a day and one thing led to another and, you know, people have FOMO and then people start getting excited. And then you get a little, you know, we were lucky and got some press. We, you know, Brendan Sexton had just been in like welcome to the dollhouse so you know a couple people knew who he was and and then we made the film and went to Sundance and you know in some ways my life's been downhill ever since because that was the the first film to ever win three prizes and we sold it to MGM and you know for a lot more money than we shot it for but yeah you gotta you gotta be on message kind of all the time you gotta be open to dealing with lots of great people you gotta be good at seeing who's good at what you know because I'd never been on a film set before and but people were always like yo you should be a producer like you know everybody you you know you have you know I always joke like you need a, a pencil a Rolodex a telephone and that's what you can produce a movie with. And then you got to be honest and kind of transparent and make sure everybody's kind of, you know, you got to motivate and activate and inspire and, and work hard yourself. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of in awe of your, your list of work here. You've made so many movies. It's incredible how many movies you've produced. Well, a lot of it, again, is like playing well with others. What do people need? You know, because, you know, one of my heroes that I've never met was like Saul Zantz. He would do one film every five years. It would be usually with Milos Forman. It would usually win multiple, you know, Academy Awards. Instead, I do, I work on like four films every year for whatever, 25 years. And so, you know, you can get to a hundred doing four to four to six films a year, but I like just whatever my personality is. I like being involved in lots of different things and especially the, you know, documentaries. I like doing deep dives on interesting topics. And so I'm kind of a yes person in terms of saying yes to a lot of, a lot of different ideas and possibilities. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So the question I was building up to is like, after a hundred movies, like, what are you looking for in a movie now? Like, you've made so many movies, you've like told so many stories, like what about a project has to grab you in order for you to want to like, you know, make it one of your four a year? Yeah, I, you know, it's one of those weird things, like I don't have a perfect answer because, you know, you look at the films that have the great cast, the great director, the great script, and then they, they don't work. You know, you look at Hollywood, you look at films that should be amazing and they turn out not good. And then you, the film that, you know, the little film that all of a sudden is, turns out amazing and like what happened and the chemistry, you know, there's that magic, right? There's the star quality of the unknown actor, you know, and before I sat through, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of casting tapes, I thought the whole star quality thing was a BS. And then you realize like there are people who just on film have something that you cannot stop watching. So there's a certain magic. I mean, I like telling stories that will move the needle on some social issue, environmental issue. You know, I've done a lot of films with queer directors, LGBT themes, done some environmental documentaries, changed a, an adoption related law in North Carolina after one of our films. And then, and then you, I guess after 20 years of kind of save the world, meaningful, meaningful films, that's when I was like, you know what, I just want to have some fun. Let's do some crazy horror films and just see. <laughs> so that's been my experiment. I don't know if I'm still going to do any more of those or not, but it's never, it's been about the kind of the return on community, the return on, you know, my time, you know, bandwidth and, and working with good people who I think have something to say, you know, like the Eliza Hitmans of the world with It Felt Like Love and then working with good producers. So now producers will come to me because I do have access to some financing sometimes. 
And so, you know, there's the trusted filters in this, you know, there's so much product being made and it's hard to compete with the streamers and, you know, who who are folks that have either made a good short, ready to make a good feature, are are coming from a place that maybe we haven't seen, whether it be Appalachia or, you know, Hawaii. And, you know, obviously documentaries are a little more, you know, on the on the nail on the head in terms of impact potential. But I think features often can have some great impact as well. You tell me if I'm asking too personal a question, you know, obviously. Just in a conversation I had with you before this chat, I'm noticing this pattern and noticing now it's like films that other people won't take chances on, films that are more gambles, atypical, avant-garde, weird, crazy, whatever it is. But but you still must be financially solvent. You know, it's like you clearly... you probably live in a nice house, you probably live a nice life. It, you know, is it just looking at your books and saying this is what I have, this is what I can afford to experiment on? Or are you prioritizing the experiment over the stability? Yeah, I mean, the you know, most films lose money, you know, the percentage of films, I mean, not every film I invest in, I, tr- you know, I go into films saying, like, let's try not to lose money. <laughs> I don't go in saying, let's try to make a bunch of money. But I basically assume that, you know, my other businesses will finance the potential losses that I take investing in the films that I'll invest in when I do invest. But and a lot of times, you know, somebody just needs the first mover. Nobody wants to be, you know, human nature is like nobody wants to be the first person taking a risk on, you know, maybe a road trip movie with not much of a script, you know, like The Unknown Country. Of course, it turns into an amazingly beautiful movie. And a lot of people don't have the time to do the research into the background and the the, the early work of some of the artists. So like, I love watching short films. I love, you know, talking to college students and seeing their shorts. And I feel like, you know, I mean, even for example, in Hurricane Streets, they were like, you know, Enrique Chediak was our director of cinematography. He'd never shot a feature. He'd never shot 35 millimeter. And people were like, how can you hire him? And I'm like, well, I watched 16 of his student short films that he DP'd. And he made them all look so beautiful that can you imagine what he would do with a feature? And then he wins Best Cinematography at Sundance that year with our film. So, so, you know, for whatever reason, like I kind of make the time to do the research into the kind of the team. And, and that goes to, you know, startup, startup investing in, you know, business entrepreneurship too. It's like, it's about the people at the end of the day and the story's got to be good, but the team's got to be good too. I want to hear more about your process for like, when you get on a film, like, is it always, it's got to be different every time, right? Like, it's not always that you come with a movie with a script and you go and find the money. Like, do you come in like to movies that are already like funded, like, is there a certain type of movie that you're like interested in, like joining, like at a certain like point in its process, or and and then what do you do once you get on board with that movie? Yeah. So again, I have done everything from I gave one writer the idea for a movie, and he wrote a script for a movie, and I'm trying to find the money to make that movie. So that was like literally like I started with the idea. Sometimes I will watch a short film and say, you know what? Like, there's another director in LA I'm working with right now. I watched this short, and I was like, you have an amazing I don't know how you pulled that off with that short like I would love to work on a feature we have been working now for a year and a half he sends me a new draft every two months and he's probably on his 12th draft and hates me but we're getting very very close and I think we'll shoot this year and then other films you know like Wicked Games like I read the script wasn't sure I was going to be involved didn't need to be on set per se but then in the post-production process the director was like, you're being very, very helpful. And I, I'm very good at festivals, marketing. So I, I'm good at script development. I'm good at connections with cast. If you're at that stage, I can do the fundraising. I've done a bajillion business plans. I know how to talk to investors now that I can sometimes be an investor, which is not, you know, I've been on both sides of that, fundraising and and investing. So it goes back to what does the film need? How can I plug in to not waste people's time, not waste my time, be value add, you know, not detract and enhance the project, basically. If a filmmaker, let's say they have shorts, they have features, but they're not, they don't blow you away. They're mediocre. They're fine. You know, is there anything else a filmmaker can do to impress you or producers like you? I mean, is it an airtight business plan? Is that what wins you over? Or is it passion? I don't mean to answer your question for you. I'm just curious. You know, there's a lot of filmmakers who don't have the resource 
to make that film that's going to blow you out of the water, but they they still have a lot of conviction and curious how they could get to you and, and, and win you over. Yeah, I mean, sometimes literally there's one filmmaker that I've finally agreed to help on. I don't quite know if I totally understand the film, but I think she has a very interesting voice. And, you know, I'm second guessing my, you know, like, you know, cis hetero white male standing and that I should be open to this just being a something new that I maybe don't understand, but I should help out on. So that was kind of wore, wore me down. And just the persistence was super helpful because it is amazing how many people do not follow up. You know, like I will give them my card. I'll be like, send me whatever. And then I'll say, send me a one pager. They'll send me a one pager and then radio silence. And then, you know, like, so there's a, a culling process that happens. And I don't know if people think I'm not interested or I'm just, but it's part of the, pro, you know, like, how long are they going to wait to ping me to see if I read the script? And and then, but then there's also just like certain topics, like whether it's, you know, LGBT topics, environmental topics, you know, I'm doing, I just opened a brewery in Appalachia. So I just watched a rough cut of a, a guy I helped. I'm not producing, but I helped him on a film that shot in Harlan County. But that's, you know, I'm really interested in breaking down the urban rural divide. So anything shooting in Kentucky, which is now my, you know, my home state now. And that's, that goes to like economic development, cultural development, potential tourism development. If the film becomes, you know, field of dreams type thing. So, you know, other films I'll help on literally because they shoot in Kentucky. I'm like, if you're shooting in Kentucky, I will help you, <laughs> you know, because that's just good for the whole ecosystem. And, you know, I lived in New York long enough. I lived in LA, you know, there's great infrastructure in, in on the coasts, but we need to really work on these voices from the, the, the flyover states. So we've only talked to many people who also invest in film before. Can you talk about like what that's like when you actually put your own money into a project and like, has that ever been lucrative for you or has it always been the same old story? Like, you know, it's hard to make money back on a movie. Well, m the reason most people don't ever admit that they've ever invested in the film is they don't want anybody else to know that they might be somebody <laughs> that could be called. <laughs> You know, so I think I did a panel at South by one year and it was like, I got another investor and me and somebody else. And, and people were like, you guys are exposing yourself like that. You know, they thought that was kind of crazy. But at the end of the day, you know, there are nonprofit groups that have fiscal sponsorships that have dollars to help support certain works. And I, I do think it is important from the for-profit sector to sometimes be that risk-taking and you assume that, you know, six films are not going to recoup, but the one will do well. And if it does well enough, it will cover the losses of the other. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to hear more about you as an artist or your love of art. I mean, do you also, I know, I, I knew you gave someone else the idea to write a script, but do you also write and do you, have you directed and is there any kind of instinct in you to want to do something like that? Or do you, or is the creativity of producing enough for you? Yeah. So I, I am, so when I was in like college, I thought I was kind of cursed with the desire to be, you know, the, the next Hemingway, you know, Paris Review darling writer, but cursed with the, la with the desire, but the lack of ability and talent. And then I was like a DJ. And then I realized that, you know, I tried to play in a band and, and at some point I realized like I'm much better at nurturing, discovering and nurturing and helping other people. Like that's, that's my, that's my creativity. So I, while I'm, you know, and I think my brain is like half creative, half business. So I think producing, like I'm so always astounded that I somehow ended up as a film producer because it's a perfect job for my brain. Like I'm interested in lots of things. I'm super extroverted love talking to people, love helping people. And that's at the end of the day. What, and I love storytelling and I love sitting around talking and, you know, so that, and that's what filmmaking really is. So it sounds like you kind of did the filmmaking thing full time, almost from the beginning. You just dove right in, you know, on the early days, but like, was there a certain breaking point where you were able to pay the bills as a filmmaker producing movies or yeah. was it right from the beginning? Yeah. So again, I got lucky. I had my job at the French film office for about three years working with the Cannes Film Festival, helping organize the Americans that would go to Cannes and the filmmakers that would submit their films to Cannes. So I, I ended up with this amazing network in New York. And, you know, the, the people that are interested in foreign language films are the same people that are interested in indie films. And this is the early 90s. 
So then I started distributing the short films, didn't make any money, but, you know, got a lot of kind of press coverage. We had the, you know, my first film was a big hit financially. I made enough to, you know, live for, I don't know, a couple of years. We were the top 10 production company in New York City for a couple of years there, according to Hollywood Reporter. I got paid to, you know, help produce a movie or two here or there. And then I got, again, lucky that I had taken on some kind of an investor partner and a business a guy who, Kevin Chinoy, who had an MBA from Wharton, who was super smart. And so we built and then sold our production company at the height of the tech boom. So then that was enough money to last. So, you know, it's so crazy, you know, every like four to six years, I would have a big financial windfall from a film, a sale, another film, a paid job. You know, we had a show on Fox for a season called Greg the Bunny, which was Sean Baker's, you know, basically, it was basically a hundred short films from Sean Baker before he did his first feature. So that was, you know, you make a lot of money in TV. So there, you know, when I moved to Louisville 15, 16 years ago, you know, I was, I was solvent, but I wasn't like, you know, it was a very boomer bust. So I still had a very modest apartment with very low overhead. You know, I always say like, how long can you afford to be broke? And the longer you can afford to be broke, the higher your success chances of success are. It's true. Conversations that I engage with on a daily basis are sustainability for filmmakers, not necessarily financial, because we all kind of talk ad nauseum about how it's a gamble and you can't really predict that, but lifestyle wise and how we just really, I don't think we could go on exhausting ourselves on set, on sets. But it sounds like. And, and you know, also for the record, yeah. like I was writing for, you know, Filmmaker Magazine. I wrote for AIVF, which was a magazine. I taught at NYU Film School for two years. So I often had, you know, other jobs. And I, I think you kind of have to until you get to the point where you're, you know, a Jason Blum type. Yeah, well, you're <laughs> we're circling around the same topic still of like exhausting yourself. That's a lot of work as an individual. And I understand the idea of like paying your dues or kind of building a foundation for yourself. As a producer, I'm just curious as, as a producer and an investor, anything comes to a head where as a producer, you, you notice a crew who may be overworked or tired or you need to slow down the shoot or they need more resources. But as an investor, you realize that the game is really to lower overhead to anticipate any sort of windfall and to maximize revenue. Do you ever come into those ethical quandaries or or are things pretty separate for you as a producer? No, I mean, I think if you, you got to, everybody has to be bought in and, you know, we are very generous with the whole like points you know, I want everybody to feel ownership so that if the film is a success, everybody's going to, you know, share in that. Uh, obviously, like, I don't pay myself as a producer on most of the, you know, if I'm investing in a film, I'm not obviously not going to pay myself as a, that, that wouldn't make any sense. So, you know, it just goes back to treating people fairly, paying people fairly, and making sure everybody knows exactly what you're making, because it's also, you know, we are adults, right? And if you can't risk those three weeks for the whatever the budget is, then you shouldn't take that job. So I, I kind of trust in people's instinct on that level too. And obviously you have to find more money if you end up going over for whatever reason, because you, you can't, you know, nobody should have to work for free. That should be a total personal decision. And based on somebody, you know, I don't know everybody's background, tolerance for risk. So, it, you know, there has to be a lot of trust involved in that kind of situation. But do you, do you see a better future for indie filmmakers coming down in the next five, 10 years? Like, do you see a way where we can kind of get out of this problem of distributors, you know, basically not being able to pay us anything for our movies and them just sort of going into the ether when they're done? Or, or do you feel like we're sort of stuck in the distribution model that has been set up like, you know, 20 years ago plus? I mean, you know, I don't, I, I'm a very optimistic person, but this is just one area where the optimism flails in front of the realities. <laughs> And, you know, my record label in, you know, even 20, 15 years ago, if I had an artist who sold 10,000 CDs, that's $100,000. And that same artist gets 10 million streams on Spotify, which is a huge number. That's $35,000. And that's a, that's a lot of streams on Spotify. 
So I feel like film is going the way of music where, you know, there's 60,000 songs every day getting put on Spotify. How do you cut through the filter? I mean, how do you decide what to watch on Hulu, what to watch on Netflix? And then you have all the streamers, you know, it's harder to compete for actors when, you know, they know if they take a Netflix film or whatever, it's going to be out on Netflix and potentially seen by a bajillion people where they take our little indie film, like they don't even know who's going to maybe distribute it. Is it going to get the love that they're hoping? Is their work going to be seen? You know, that's the defi- the true definition of independent film for me is film made with no preordained distribution. Like nobody working on the film knows if it's ever going to come out. So, <laughs> and you can't sell DVDs out of your trunk anymore because nobody, I don't even have a DVD player. So unfortunately, I actually think it's it it replicates the American society where, you know, the rich get richer, poor get poorer, the middle class gets squeezed. And I think the the working class filmmakers, you know, are going to be having second jobs for a while until you, you know, really make something that resonates so much that it monetizes. So, you know, and there's lots of actors, too. It's like, you know, I remember talking to one actress, I won't say who, but I said, like, you're not going to get famous till you're 40. And sure enough, she now has an Oscar. And I saw her, you know, the other day and we did a film together 20 something years ago. And, you know, you could just tell some people you're going to have to work for 20 years and you may have to have some other part time jobs. And if you still keep doing it and don't give up, you know, the the sad thing or the, the reality is that lots of people kind of just give up and go into, you know, corporate world or, you know, can't afford any kind of financial risk. And sometimes those are some great voices that aren't being heard. So how do we try to find them and keep them, you know, making quality, interesting work? It, it's a challenge. So I, I'm not I'm not totally optimistic. I think it's going to continue being being hard. So then the non-monetary payoff for you, I mean, I understand the creation of the piece of art is one thing, right? And you got to love, sorry, yeah. and you got to yeah. love the process. Yeah. Because I tell people if you're going into film because you want to go to a premiere and, you know, be on a poster and tell your friend whatever, like <laughs> that is not film filmmaking is the late nights the edit room by yourself, the agent yelling at you, you know, so you got to love the whole process of the the filmmaking process. You can't just like the end result and the product. And there has been, you know, from the, you know, my first film that was shot on film to now where you don't have to shoot on film, there's been a great democratization of filmmaking, which is fantastic in that everybody can pick up and make a movie with an iPhone as long as you can, you know, wrangle a couple of friends, figure out what your story is. Like the stories, there are so many more potential stories now. You don't have to, you know, be a you know, upper middle class, rich enough person to know people that can invest a quarter million dollars to rent a 35 millimeter camera and pay for, you know, four weeks of shooting and developing 35 millimeter film. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Well, you kind of answered the question with that with that addendum of like, I mean, it sounds like you enjoy the process, but is there kind of an individual to individual, like I, my presumption is that filmmakers are very grateful for you. I mean, you're like a patron saint of indie film. And like, if that were me, I'd probably get high every day, just like off of the thank yous. Like, is that also why you do it? Like, is it, do, do you do it because you are daily protecting something that no one else is willing to protect? Like, do you, do you drive joy from that? Or is it the people being, gra- you know, grateful to you or is it just the creation of the art well it's also just first of all it's 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 the team there's always a team of people around right so there's not one patron saint or not one you know there's always a lot of people who are there's a lot of good karma involved in any film that ends up being successful right so you're part of this kind of good karma train which i love and you know there's it's just the challenge it's always risk it's always problem solving and challenging and trying to figure out how, you know, it's like, there's never a dull moment because there's always some new, like, oh my gosh, we got, oh, we lost that location. I mean, we showed up for, 
you know, one we were supposed to shoot in a bodega and it burned down the day before, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, there's always something crazy, you know, never a dull moment. And, you know, so I, I guess I thrive on that kind of edge. It's a little bit thrill seeking. You know, I don't jump out of airplanes or anything. I'm not that stupid, you know, trying to I work. know an investor who does, who listens to this podcast. For so that's funny. Is- <laughs> my, my, like I have family members who've done it. I'm just like, that is crazy. Like I work in any <laughs> film. That's crazy. That's already enough risk taking thrill seeking for me. Yeah, it's just being part of a team. I like being part of a team. Cool. So I have this debate with another filmmaker slash podcaster friend of mine about the value of movies that cost between like under $250,000 or even $250,000. Like, because his theory is that no one watches those movies, that those movies are not watched by people, which I think is not true. But what do you think about that? Like, what do you think about the value of like a $12,000 feature, a $25,000 feature? Like, do you think those movies... Like are worth making at that level, or do you feel like it's better to 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 try to raise more money to like make something that you can actually get like a a movie star in that could maybe get better distribution or whatnot? Yeah, well, I, I will say I have done many many films under fifty grand in the can. The the you know roommate wanted I think it was about thirty something thousand in the can. So I think one of the ways we get a lot of films made and work with a lot of different people is that like what is like you know you do three budgets, you do your dream budget with you know, Will Ferrell, whatever you do, your medium budget SAG, you know, scale with maybe somebody that's been on some TV shows. And then you do the budget. Like we just have to make this film and like, we'll make it with our friends. We'll shoot in our house and we have to make the film. And many of the films, we've never got the big budget. We never got the medium budget, but we still got the film made. And I feel like, you know, Hollywood is filled with people waiting for somebody else to give them the green light. And I'm like, green light yourself, man, figure it out. Many indie films are, there's not like crazy effects. There's not crazy car chases. There's not crazy locations. There are personal dramas. If you have, you know, some friends and you can tell the story and convince them to work with you, you can get the film made. I mean, I worked on another film called Seven Splinters in Time, and it has it's a crazy sci-fi film, which should never have been made as an indie, but we had to make it. We made it under $200,000. It's an insane film, but it took six years in post to get all the special effects done because we didn't have any money and time is money, but it's an amazing film. Won some prize at Cinequest. You know, we have not recouped, but we paid our last and first out investor back. And, you know, the, the, Gabriel Judith Weinshell, the writer director, is super talented. Working on a second film with him now, and you know, if we if we'd waited for all the pieces to come together, we, he would still have never made his first feature. I think it's time for us to go to the James Lipton portion of our interview. <laughs> first question is: What's the first film you ever made as a producer, as a, as a whatever, and whatever, and ever distributed, whatever? What's the film you ever were part of in a meaningful way, and how do you feel about it now? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I was super lucky to. First I did. I worked on Hurricane Streets. Was the well? I tried to produce one film, and I could never find the money. And then Morgan J. Freeman, who had I distributed one of his short films on Cineblast. I read this script called Hurricane, which then went to Sundance, and I'd never even been to Sundance. And that was the first film to win three prizes. We sold it to MGM. It was insane. I watched it the other day. It feels a little dated, but you know, Edie Falco like basically got a role in The Sopranos because they saw her play Brendan Sexton's mom in in Hurricane Streets. All these people's careers just blew up from that movie. So that was fun. And then at the same time, when that was in post, the, my now great friend, Tim Kirkman, was introduced to me by the great film critic, Godfrey Cheshire, saying, oh, there's a fellow North Carolinian. You got to meet Tim Kirkman. He's working on a documentary. And I was like, well, I've just wrapped production on a feature. I don't know any how to make a doc. And he pitched me this doc about his special relationship with Jesse Helms. Jesse Helms was the super homophobic right-wing senator representing my friend Tim, who is a gay man in North Carolina. And literally the person who's representing him in the Senate calls him the son of, you know, Satan's spawn. And I was like, <laughs> that's a funny love letter. So then we did that documentary and then that sold to HBO. So I did a feature and a doc in the same first year. That's kind of, and they're, you know, super proud of both of them. And, you know. And then what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? You know, try to say yes to as much as you can. You just never know what leads to what. And sometimes the thing that doesn't happen ends up being, ends up leading you to the thing that does happen. And don't get too depressed about the thing that doesn't happen. Cause at the end of the day, that could be a, a great thing in disguise, you know, and the first film that I tried to produce, I think 
if I had produced that, it would have gone nowhere. And I literally don't know if I would have had the positive reinforcement that the two films I did produce ended up giving me to literally last me 20 years later, 25 years later, I'm still making movies, not to mention the, the financial you know, windfall. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received or heard? Uh, the worst advice. Uh, I mean, the worst advice. So this is a mixed one because the worst advice is also, you know, the reality is like nobody knows anything, right? But I've also worked with enough directors that didn't listen to a group of people requesting certain edits in the post-production process and then getting to a film festival and only then realizing like, oh, you guys were right. We should have <laughs> cut that scene or, you know, so it's like nobody knows anything, but sometimes if everybody's telling you something related to something, even if it's not the exact same note, but it's in the same area of the film, like you should probably really look at that area because something's not, you know, people get so close to the process. So, and, you know, you just got to have thick skin because at the end of the day, it's a no, you know, I'm being told no all the time, like no from potential investors, no from actors, no from agents, no from film festivals, no from distributors. So the, you know, the world is, is filled with no's, which, you know, could kill a lesser man. <laughs> so you got to be trying to say yes. And again, you got to be in it for the right reasons. And how do you define success? And you have to have your own kind of definition of success for each project. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker or producer? So, you know, I think in the early days, your goal is, you know, practicing your Oscar acceptance speech in the shower. <laughs> I think my goal now I've kind of gotten older and wiser. Like, I, I mean, every now and then I, there's a film that I will work on that I think has, you know, Oscar potential. And, but it's really just like keep helping. You know, I, I work with lots of first time. I, I mean, I'll work with directors on their sixth film too, but I'm hoping that they kind of graduate to, you know, bigger budgets, bigger everything's because I'm, I'm doing lots of other, you know, I can't be a, the, the the soup to nuts on set full producer on a huge budget film because you know until my kids go to college I'm I gotta I can't do that so I, I will keep on doing basically what I'm doing trying to tell good stories trying to work with you know new voices nurturing new talent and staying in the sandbox of high risk you know there, there are lots of people can can pay Julia Roberts 10 million bucks you know, and they can do that. And that's a whole Hollywood thing. And, but there's not that many people in the in the sandbox of truly independent film. And so I, I just like that. And I think it's fun. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? I mean, I was always optimistic enough to think that things would work out, even in the face of, you know, eviction notices on my apartment door and the phone getting turned off. And, you know, so just it, it'll work out. And maybe there's one or two films that I would say, you probably don't want to do that film. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, is making movies hard? Making movies can be extremely hard. Making movies when, again, the team, when there's a good team and everybody's on the same page and, you know, there's love and support and vision, you know, then it's, I mean, it's not easy because it's, it is work at the end of the day, right? It's, it's a, on some levels, it's a, it's a trade and a craft, but it's also art. And there's that balance of enjoying what you're doing. You know, they, they always say that the most contented work workers historically are like stonemasons because you make something and it lasts almost forever. Right. And I feel like mm -hmm. filmmaking is like you make a film and it is there. It lasts. It is around. It's in the ether. It, you know, used to have a physical, you know, but it's it's art. Right. So it's tactile and there's something very meaningful. And it, also, if you can get a lot of people to appreciate the film, it resonates with the public. Then you really kind of created successful art on one level. We ask people at the end of the interview if they have a call to action for our listeners like for Wicked Games how can they support the filmmakers how can they support you do you want people to follow you on Twitter feel free to take take a moment here <laughs> no I, I just think the important thing is when you're watching films when you're making your film selections at home whatever like watch the films you know do a little bit of the research what were the festival favorites because the you know the indie films don't have the marketing they just don't have the marketing budget and while it's always fun to watch a you know the newest you know blockbuster from Hollywood like, I think you have to be intentional in what you're watching, because the more people continue watching 
the unique voices from, you know, places outside of Hollywood and, and New York, then, you know, it continues. But if everybody just goes to the the blockbusters over and over and over, you know, then that's all we will have. So I just think that you got to have intentionality in your viewing habits and, and networking with your friends and asking your friends, like, what's what's good that's unique and, you know, different and what should we check out? What's important, what, you know, what not to miss? I, I know we have three minutes, but I want to sneak one more question in if we can. How do you define success for our indie film? Yeah. So, well, I think everybody should have their own definition kind of and be clear eyed about what they think is success for them. Because, you know, the number of like script proposals, you know, decks for fundraising decks where they compare their film to like Blair Witch Project and <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite and whatever. I'm like, your film has nothing to do with those movies. Like, you're picking two of the you know biggest ROI you know indies that that's not what your film's about and if that's what what you're what you think then like we're definitely not on the same page so i think it's much more like you know are your expectations in line with you know the budget the storyline you know, if it's a mumblecore film, you're, you know, most likely you're not going to turn into a huge Hollywood blockbuster and you should be happy with that. And you should be happy making the film with your friends and getting the word out. And then if you want to make bigger films, you have a calling card and some people like making, you know, the same level films. And then after, you know, 20 years, they're considered a, a great artist and they have an of, you know. Alric, what do you remember about our chat with Gil? It was a long time ago that we talked to Gil. It was probably like January or something. Yeah. And I remember like not really knowing what to expect from Gil and then just being blown away by his level of experience, like the amount of movies that he's made, his process. I thought everything was very interesting and he was just so hungry to produce movies and and keep on doing it despite like, you know, not necessarily having in his own words, like a tremendous amount of success. And I think it was like his first movie was the most successful. He was saying that was like, I went to Sundance and he's like, Oh, and I'm like, but dude, you made so many movies. How could you not look at that as a successful career? So I don't know. I just remember that. And just remember being really impressed and wanting to like, you know, somehow take his energy and drive and, you know, manufacture it for myself so I could make as many movies as he has. He's a true indie film hero, like a true indie film hero. I, I've i talked to him a few times since, you know, via email and, and one phone call and just his perspective about genuinely wanting to make a difference to support artists like who who do we ever hear that does that, that says that and means it and then puts their money where their mouth is. It's I'm just like really grateful <laughs> that someone like Gil Holland exists. So I don't I, I don't remember the conversation either, but I just I'm like, oh, everyone <laughs> should know his name. He's he's a big deal. So thank you, Gil, for coming on the show. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of great, great info and great, you know, tips in this episode. So I hope everybody enjoys. I am very, very excited to move on to You're the Expert. So for people who are first listening to the show, it's the first time you've never heard of anything of this before. Basically, You're the Expert is a segment that our producer Eric Tom's created where he poses a question to Liz and I in advance. So we have read this, we have seen this, and basically something that he thinks that we are the experts on, that we should know like the definitive answer about to this question. So Liz, I'll go ahead and pose it to you first and see what you have to say. The question is, over the life of your career, do you think it's better to work with one DP, director of photography, so as to build a relationship or to work with multiple so as to experience different people's styles? Thank you for defining DP for Pat and Tobin Kowalski, who sometimes need terms defined. Okay. So my perspective is the goal for me is to be a one DP woman. It's almost like Mm. I want like a marriage of minds creatively with certain department heads. Like I feel like I have a production designer that I want to work with forever and it's Marcy Mount. And like, I don't feel the need to deviate from her. If she's available, I want to work with her. Right. Mm. I think the goal is to find the one DP to work with forever that for me personally, but when you start out, it's about, it's like dating. You have to figure out what can you, how can you become a better person? How do I phrase this? You know, when you date someone and it doesn't work out and you learn from it, 
because of the ineffectiveness of your own communication style, or you learn what you want more, or you learn how to, I don't know, communication is really the key of this. You become a better communicator if you actually work with people that aren't good fits too. And so I think it's important to try and work with as many DPs as possible in the beginning so you can figure out who pushes you best, how do they push you best, who's the best type of communicator, what type of DP do you want to work with on a regular basis? And then I like the idea of committing. I think that's beautiful. And then you can nurture that relationship and evolve it over decades. And that's what I want. But I'd be curious what you think. Yeah, I have a more complicated answer to this question. So I do think it's really wonderful when you find that person that you want to collaborate with, like who's like, you know, your DP, quote unquote, who you really like and you have a shorthand with and a correct connection with, and like they're the person that you trust the most. But I also think there's something to be said for working with different people because there are so many different wonderful cinematographers with different styles and different skill sets and, you know, different perspectives. And I think sometimes it's good to see like what it's like to experience making a project with somebody who has a completely different perspective than you do. I've been lucky enough to direct projects with a wide variety of, of cinematographers. I think I've done, you know, ranging from short films to commercials and whatnot with what's like how many? One, two, three, four, five different DPs in, in addition to the, to my lead DP that I love working with a, a lot. So I have had like an experience working with different people and, you know, it's hard to compare them all because all the projects are different. So it's like, you know, it's, it's really like hard to do a direct comparison, but I think in the end, it's, it's something I want to continue doing, but like, I still want to go back to my main DP, Jason, who may or may not listen to this episode because I just love working with him. I think he's, we have a really special connection artistically. And I think we think about things very differently. So like when we mesh together, it's like create something so beautiful and new. You know, I think sometimes DPs have a hard time understanding like the importance of directors working with other DPs and that like, it's nothing personal and it's not like, oh, I don't want to work with you because I don't think you're not good enough or whatever, or like, oh, whatever. It's just because I want to explore something new. I want to try something different. I want to go in a different direction. I want to ex- expand my creativity as a filmmaker. It's like absolutely 1000% nothing to do with the person. And I think sometimes it's, it's, it's very natural and easy to like get your feelings hurt, you know, but like, I don't think like, I think for all the DPs out there, like if, if you work with somebody you had a great time with, but then they end up working with a different DP on another project, don't take it personally because it, it almost very, 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 very good chance has nothing to do with you as an artist or a person. It's just has everything to do with the director wanting to explore something different in their, in their art. But yeah, I mean, having said that, I do want to like make like, you know, my next feature with Jason and like, you know, many, many more features with Jason after that, as long as nothing explodes. <laughs> so, but, you know, but I would love to make a feature with somebody else and like production designers too. Like I, Rob, you know, is my production designer on my, one of my short films, the, the alternate, oh, he didn't do the alternate short, but he did do the alternate feature. And like, he'll be the production designer on the next feature for sure. But like, okay. there's, I know the, these two women who are completely like their own production designers on their own right. And like, I want to work with both of them <laughs> at some point in the future because they're both completely awesome. And I, I love them as people and as artists. And it's like, oh man, I'd love to, you know, do a movie with her and, and with her at another point. So it's like, I want to, I want to explore, you know, and I don't think there's one right or wrong answer to this, but I think like working with different crews and different people and different artists can only make you better as an artist, you know? And even though it is wonderful and magical to find the, those people you want to work with every time, it's like, sometimes it's not going to work out. And then what do you do? You know? So it's good to have yeah, other people who you've worked with, <laughs> but it's good to have like a roster that you can like dip no, into in, ca- in case true. it doesn't work out, you know? No, I, I think your answer is the correct one. I'm, I'm acknowledging <laughs> that like, I am a little bit codependent and I lo- I'll, I'll phrase it in a positive way. Loyalty is very important to me. Like I am, I'm, yeah. So like very loyal, lo- it's, it's like a character attribute that I, I cling to. And so my ultimate goal is to build a film family, is to put together my favorite department heads and to continue to make movies with those people over and over again. It's a comfort thing. It's a joy thing. And also it's like some of my favorite filmmakers they have a defined style and I really would love to be known for a defined style. And I think a lot of that comes from 
your editor, your production designer, your cinematographer. But I, th- but I think your answer is the right one. Like you should be working with other people. You should. I just tend to like interpret this question as like an interpersonal loyalty question rather than like what's best for you as an artist. And then I just want to acknowledge that like, (laughs) it's not usually me rejecting cinematographers. It's usually the cinematographers (laughs) being like, I'm unavailable. Like I can't do it. (laughs) So I just, I also want to have a relationship with a cinematographer where they're like, yes, you know, they say yes. And they, they are on board for whatever and to have that kind of relationship. And I, I have a lot of cinematographers I really love that I work with, but I think that maybe I haven't found that person yet. I don't mm. know. Mm. Interesting. Maybe. We'll see. Mm. And I'm, I, that's like a fun journey. Like who's going to be your partner for life? In yeah. Department? Interesting. I, I don't think my answer is any, any more less loyal than your answer necessarily. Although I think some people could conceive it that perceive it that way. But I still think you can you can work with other people and still be loyal to people. It doesn't you don't have to work with with one with the same people on every single project. Like no, I but I wish your understand. answer was my answer. But my answer is not that. My answer is like no, I just really want to build this family and I want to stick together and I never want to leave. Like that's what I want. I mean, it's not like DPs don't work with other directors. <laughs> like, I know. And then I get I jealous of them. <laughs> For what it's worth, I get jealous. Like constantly. That's funny. Well, if you guys have questions, comment or suggestions, or you want to weigh in on this, you're the expert answer. Like, are we completely off? Is there another correct answer that we didn't say? Let us know. You can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show a lot, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be amazing. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. You should not forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese. 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 They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. Use our code MMIH for your 20% discount today. Thanks to Gil Holland for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimert, for doing the editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric Trons, for being awesome. And thanks to our unpaid intern, California Jones, a.k.a. Robert Jones, for taking on the social media for the, for the podcast. It's doing a fantastic job. Thank you so much, Robert. And we'll talk to you all next week. What is he doing? What... Maybe we could, it's like be a fun game. What is Albert doing? Is he... Room tone? Yeah, is it room tone? Is his daughter trying to sleep? Should we... Are we annoying him? Oh my God, I'm so sorry, guys. This director <laughs> would not stop talking about all his creative ideas. And I was like trying to get... I was like, I told him I had to get off the phone. And then he like, yeah, yeah, okay. But then what if he did this and this and that and this? And I'm like... <laughs> You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.